Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Aren't these Psalms of Ascent just amazingly beautiful? If you've been reading them uh, with me in preparation for worship, you've just found them super powerful. You can read all of them every day. There are only 15. Some of them, as we'll find today, are very short. Only a few are particularly long, and they really are one of the most ancient compilations of Scripture that we have in all the Bible, which is amazing to think and to consider. I think several thousand years old, as I'll get to. And they really do prepare us for worship. They get our hearts and our minds moving in the right direction. And we've been talking about what you do to prepare for worship. So I'm going to ask you again, as I did at the beginning of service, are you ready today to worship? Are you prepared? Okay, turn to your neighbor. Tell them one thing you did to prepare for worship today. Tell somebody. I don't care who. Tell them. If you tell your husband or wife, they'll know if you're telling the truth. So, so what did you do to get yourself ready? Now, there's, there's one sense in which we could say that it's what you do every day that prepares you to worship. So we call this whole life discipleship here. We call it uh, an everyday pursuit, and we say that it is, it is really serious. And that's what one of the books that we've been reading in this series uh, together uh, is about. I don't know how many of you have done it, but we invited all of our small group members and leaders to read Eugene Peterson's little book, uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Have you read this book before? I mean, it's, it's not a new book, interestingly enough. It's a fantastic little book. I've not been preaching from it. It takes a different direction, and that is Peterson tracks these psalms as sort of invitations to discipleship, or what he calls apprenticing Jesus. And what he, in essence, is saying is that our everyday habits are what really prepare us to be in God's presence. So he sort of says that discipleship sparks our interest in worship, calls us to worship, and then worship perpetuates discipleship, energizes discipleship, and it becomes a a constant movement as we talk about. So I love one of his quotes on worship in, uh, in his book. By the way, his whole premise is it's, it's, about, it's about discipleship in what he calls an instant society, where you can be instantly gratified at any given moment. You can get whatever you want at any time, that, that you're constantly bombarded with stuff. And so you know what he's thinking about, right? He's thinking about Netflix, right? That's what he's talking about. He's thinking about your iPhone isn't he? He's talking about Instagram or TikTok here. TikTok, my goodness, just constant bombardment. He's, he's talking about fast food restaurants and lines that you can get into without even getting out of your car. You can have whatever you want when you want, and the answer is no. He's not talking about any of these things because he wrote the book in 1980. So if what he's referring to there was true in a simpler time, how much more true is it now? But of worship, he writes this, We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. 
Do you discover this to be true, that worshiping among God's people, corporate worship, this possibility really is an an act of discipline. It's something that we, that we do out of conviction, but we walk away feeling differently than we did when we came in. Not always, but, but usually. But it really is a product of our everyday discipleship. You've got to be ready to worship every single day. Now, I've had this illustrated in my life a number of times, and I told this to the rock and roll group at 9.30, and some of you have heard it before because years ago I think I told this story before, but we were driving into the area where my family's beach house is one time, and I used to, this is, I've got to confess to you that this is, this is a former me, okay? So I used to feel like when I was on vacation, I needed to find a place to worship every single Sunday. Now, I will tell you that my wife's opinion, Debbie's opinion, was different than that. She calls herself a vacation heathen. This is not a good example for us to set for you, I recognize. I do think it's good for you to find a place to worship, but what she says is, honey, look, we're different than anyone else in the church. We have to be there every Sunday, every last weekend we are in town. I don't think people really understand what it means. When you're a pastor, there are no weekends. I mean, very seldom do you find yourself anywhere else. And so she said, so when I'm on vacation, it stresses me out to think about having to do that. I'm going to take the day off. Now, I worked early in our marriage to guilt and shame her about this. <laughs> Unsuccessfully unsuccessfully. I still try it once in a while. It's usually not very successful, just will tell you. And so I'd say to her, honey, you know, we're faithful people. We, uh, when we're on vacation, we're going to go to worship. And she'd go, okay, you be my guest. You can go worship. You worship enough for the two of us. Okay. So, so we're driving into town, and I see this little white frame country church. It reminds me of the first church I pastored. The first church I pastored was Turkey Branch Baptist Church in Enfield, North Carolina. It was a farm church. It was in a farm field. It was a farm church. No air conditioning, hot as blazes in the summer. Some of you are nodding. You've done this before. It had a metal roof. That, that thing absorbed heat like it was unreal how hot it could get in there. I'm like, let's just go outside and worship, which once in a while we do. And I saw this little church, this little white frame church, and I, I said, we're going to worship there this coming Sunday. We're going to go to worship there this coming Sunday, which of course met the usual response. You're going to worship there this coming Sunday. Sometimes my oldest daughter would go with me. And so I, on this particular Sunday, it's about 18 years ago, I'd just come here, not maybe two years before. And I go early in the morning. I go because I'm going to meet the pastor. I, I think, you know, I should go in and get to know the pastor. And so I go to this little white frame building and I pull up into a parking spot, and I get out and I walk in, and immediately I could recognize the pastor. There was a pretty good group of people in the room who'd gathered pretty early. I'm probably, farm church, probably no rain. Okay, that's what, when there's no rain, man, they show up. I'm going to tell you right now. I walk in, and immediately I could tell who the pastor was. I could tell by the way people were greeting him, and he was greeting them, but I could tell by the way he looked. Okay, this is this is sad to say, but I can pick out preachers anywhere. This is literally true. On this last trip, Debbie and I will be walking through an international airport, and a family will pass me, or a couple will pass me, or just an individual, and I will say to her, that's a preacher. She goes, how do you know? I go, look, you must be kidding. That's a preacher. And She's never said this before, but on this trip she did. I go, that's a preacher. She goes, has it ever occurred to you they can pick you out of a crowd too? I went, nah, nah, nah. I don't think so. 
I don't think so. So I walk into this little, little church, a white frame church, metal roof. I see the pastor. I go up. I shake his hand. I, I say, hey, I want to meet you. He goes, oh, great. I want to meet you too. We discovered that we were in seminary together but didn't know it. So my seminary was large enough at the time that there are plenty of people I bump into that weren't in my group, in my crowd. So he went to the same seminary. We talk about different things about our seminary days. He tells me how he got where he is, asks me where I am. I tell him about Columbia, about being here, about what's he goes, what's it like to serve in DC? You know, he's really curious about the whole thing. We have a good conversation. I say to him, listen, man, I know you got to prepare. I'll leave you alone. I'll go back. I'll just be sitting back here in the back. Now, there wasn't a big church. So it's not like back there, even though you don't know I can see you, but it's not like back there where Charlie Mayhew always sits. I mean, I can see Charlie, but this guy could see me. I was right. I wasn't far from him. So the worship service begins, and it reminds me again of this little church I pastored. The music wasn't particularly good, but the people sang it with gusto. It was meaningful, significant. They were engaged. I got engaged. I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought, kind of a blast from my past. I really enjoyed the experience. And then, you know, I look forward to hearing this colleague of mine who I went to seminary with, and I, I look forward to the message. So I look in advance to see what scripture we're reading. I open my Bible. I'm all ready. And he stands up, and he says, I've had a word from the Holy Spirit today. Now, this is awesome because I needed a word from the Holy Spirit. This is a good time in my life to hear a word from the Holy Spirit. So this guy's going to offer me something today that I need to hear. I've had a word from the Holy Spirit today. Awesome. I think this is exciting. And he points and he says, the Holy Spirit called me that Brother Jim from Washington, D.C. is going to come up and give the message today. (laughs) Now, this is what Brother Jim thought. Brother Jim considered several options, one of which was to walk out the back door, another of which was to stand up and say, the Holy Spirit's spoken to me today, and he says, no, I'm on vacation. But you're not going to do that, are you? You're, not, you're just not going to do that. And so I stood up and took my Bible, and I preached the passage he was going to preach, I just walked up and said, well, this is what you were going to preach today. So this is, must be what God's people are supposed to hear today, since you chose it in advance. And so I'm going to preach this sermon, and next week you can preach it better. And I, I preach to those people. Because the Bible says, always be ready to give a good word. And the question is, are you always ready You know, we say, are you ready? And the answer we give is, I was, I was born ready. I'm going to show you today that the scriptures say you were not born ready to worship. You were not born ready to follow Jesus. You were not born ready to be a disciple. You were being, you were born ready to scream and cry. You were not born ready to do the things that we have learned to do through whole life discipleship. These very intentional steps of following the master, apprenticing Jesus, and being ready when the time comes to stand and deliver. And even you where you're sitting, I'm not going to call on you in one of these services and tell you the Holy Spirit, well, I might, you never know. Matt, I might do it. I might do it one Sunday. I'm probably not going to do that, but you've got to walk in the room And you've got to be ready to deliver because you're the performers and I'm the prompter. 
You're the persons who are putting on the play for God. And you've got to know the script when you walk in the room because you might be asked to stand and deliver. In fact, you are every Sunday asked to stand and deliver. You're it. You're what we have. I can stand up here and preach. We can plan a great worship service. Even in the summer when musicians are gone, our B team is better than most people's A team. I mean, we can bring it. But only you can bring you. And so it is, it is vital that you be in the right frame of mind when you step into the room. I know that's not going to happen every week. I understand that. But if your whole life discipleship is day by day what it needs to be, I could call you in on a Wednesday and say, something's happened, let's worship. You could do it. You'd be ready to go. What is the nature of your discipleship. Now, what I'm going to teach you today is that as the pilgrim sings these songs, next week I'm going to bring a review of all that we've done, all the steps that we've made. And by the way, the last two psalms in many ways are my favorite, so I can't wait to preach next week's sermon. But this particular week, the next step for him as he approaches the temple, he's getting close to Jerusalem, probably on the outskirts of Jerusalem, is to humble his heart, to get humble, and he's got just the right psalm to do it. Now, before we do that, let's, let's review what we've learned about these psalms of ascent. They are Psalms 120 through 134. They're often called the pilgrim songs. They were sung while going to temple. They're the thoughts and hopes and prayers of the people in preparation for worship. Last week, I added to that list and told you they were written over generations. So it's not just one moment in time, but they were compiled at one moment in time, and that moment in time is early, at least 500 years before the coming of Christ, and I think most likely 1,000 years. So today, I'm going to make an argument. People have been asking me, when do you think these were compiled? I think they were compiled in 959 B.C. I'm relatively certain from the Psalms themselves and their content, especially the two we cover today, but also from the crux of of other Old Testament scholars or of Old Testament scholars that I've read and looked at, I think the strongest argument is that Solomon compiled these for the dedication of the new temple. The one that David had been asked to build but wasn't allowed to complete, the one that Solomon completed, the one we call Solomon's temple. And that was a big day. I mean, my intention, my plan, this is what I thought. I thought, as Chris and I were talking about this, we've been pushed off and pushed off and pushed off in the opening of the new building, but it's going to happen by the end of summer. So we will do these Psalms of Ascent, and we'll be ready to enter and worship God, and we'll be reading the playbook of preparation for worship that was used in that, in that Temple of Solomon's. Don't you think that'll be awesome? Well, God had other plans, and it's not going to happen that way, but we still can be prepared. So I'm thinking in, in that vein. These were found as a collection in the great Psalms scroll, which was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they are among the earliest compilations of Scripture we have in the Bible. Now, you need to understand, the Old Testament fell in lots of different orders. There aren't different versions of it, but in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were fragments. Some books were included later, some earlier, etc. But when it comes to the Psalms of Ascent, this compilation has existed as it is for thousands of years, which you've got to say is remarkable. It is of particular importance. Now, I told you, the question now is, are you ready for worship? And that question involves another, which is, are you humbled? Are you humbled? Now, I would like to say yes in answer to that question. 
But David's about to help me discover that sometimes the answer is no. I'll see if it hits you in the same place. But David has a way of ferreting this out, of pulling this out within himself that's helpful to me. And he does this with one of the shortest of the Psalms of Ascent, which is nonetheless one of the most beautiful. We're going to have now a short psalm and a verbose psalm. One is written, I think, by David, the other by Solomon. Come back to that in a minute. So here's David's psalm. And what I have found is this is magnificent self-speak before I step into the act of worship. That's how I've been using it. So I'm going to ask you to use it with me that way, to read this part of this psalm with me. Ready? My heart is not proud, Lord. Read with me. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. Isn't it great the way that David offers this? If I wrote this, I, I might be prone to say something Lord, like, Lord, make me humble, you know? Or, or to ask the question, Lord, am I humble? Or, 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 or to put this in some other phrase, but David, I could have used this. You remember that self-speak sermon series that I did? Some of you loved that particular series. I could have used this there because this is self-speak. This is David telling himself who he is. And you got to learn to do that. We have to learn to tell ourselves who we are because we live into who we say we are. We live into what other people say that we are. We will never be much if we say we're not much. But David here says that he is something, but that something is humbled before God. Now let's look carefully at the way that he says it. He says, my heart is not proud, Lord. And then you think in your brain that he just repeats himself. No, my eyes are not haughty, but these are not the same thing. So to say my heart is not proud is to make a statement about what is happening in the depths of my soul. And that can be pretty hard to get at. You may not know this is true, but there is only a surface level of what is happening inside of you that is visible to you in any given moment. It takes a lot of work to get down deep and find out what's motivating you. You ever had a crabby week? I mean, just one in which, oh, was that with this week, Meg? Or that was, I'm sorry, it was Gerhard. Okay, so you ever had a week in which you just, you were in a bad mood and you do not know why? Can I, can I see if the, can I have some hands? This is not the week where you can figure it all out. Well, this happened and that happened, sorry. Well, I, I'm really tired. Well, uh, work is really hard. Well, I'm really stressed. Well, this is the week where there's nothing really out of the ordinary going on. But, but you're in a lousy mood. That was this past week for me. Ask me why. I still don't know. I was snippy. I was short, impatient. And Debbie knew it immediately. And at one moment, she just said, would you just stop? You're being mean. I'm usually not mean. And I was like, she said, what's the matter with you? And I went, I don't know. I don't know. Something's going on inside of me, but I don't know what it is. Now, now, just to let you know, I think I've snapped out of it. I'm not positive yet, but I think I have. So I still don't know. If you could always figure it out, life would be so easy. 
If you could just dot to dot to dot to dot, here's the picture. Connect the dots. It would be so easy, but life doesn't work that way. And it doesn't for David either. So he starts out by saying, my heart is not proud. But then he lays the litmus test for that on the line. Now here's the bad news. There's no blood test for pride. There's not. There's no medical test that can show you're proud. There's nobody that can ferret that out, including you. Some people fake humility so well. Some people are so proud of their humility, they don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> humility, of course, doesn't mean you, you think less of yourself. It just means you think of yourself less. So in this particular instance, David throws the test out here, and the test is what is going on with his eyes, because I can tell what is going on with my eyes. And David says, my heart is not proud, and the reason I can tell you that, Lord, is at least today, my eyes are not haughty. I got news for you. You can't hide them haughty eyes. Do you know what haughty eyes are? Do you know what they are? Have you ever received been the beneficiary of somebody's haughty eyes? (laughs) That was easy. They looked down on you. They thought less of you. You didn't know why. Was Was it some way you dressed or looked? Was it where you came from or was it your accent or color of your skin? Was it that you were a a certain gender? Uh, Was it the job that you… Was it where you went to… What is it? You can't quite figure it out, but you can feel it. A, a, a kind of a, an implied demeaning look. Somebody just saying as though to say, you're an idiot. You're just stupid. I don't have time for you. I don't care what you think. It doesn't matter what you say. But the, the more important question is, have you ever looked at another human being that way? And you know the answer is yes. We do it all the time. In fact, sometimes you don't even have to see somebody's eyes. You know, you, you talk about a group of people and they disagree with you on something. Maybe they have a different political perspective. I mean, this is getting big in our nation right now. They see things differently. And your comment is not to say, I wonder why they feel that way or think that way, or I wonder if I can understand what they're trying to say. It's to say, these people are idiots. They're stupid. They're insane. They're nuts. And the moment you look at a class of people like that, the moment you have just betrayed the pride of your heart. Me too. Sometimes things happen that are little tests. I had one this weekend, to be honest with you, where where you've worked really hard to get beyond the point of looking at somebody in a particular way, and something happens to reinforce a stereotype for you. And then you've got to wrestle with it and struggle with it and go, is that fair and is that right? Because once I put people in a group, I cluster them, I have automatically done something to myself. And that something I've done to myself is to harden my heart to everything, including the love of God. And that was not the way of Jesus. Do you agree with me? It is not what He did, ever and it is not the way of Jesus for me. So when have I failed to love even my enemy? 
but especially those who are around me every day. David, David says, you can't hide them haughty eyes. See, here's the problem. Whenever you're looking down at anybody, you cannot look up at God. It is impossible to do both at the same time. So David gives us the test. Somebody asked me recently, a friend of mine, he said, Jim, why do you think so many people are perfectly content to stay at home and watch worship these days? There are a lot. I I, I mean, there are people who think they are very active in Columbia who are watching right now and not among you. And I said, oh, that's easy. It's just easier for them not to be among people. Because when you're around people, you've got to work at relating to them. And that's the point of corporate worship. Because the test of how we love God is how we treat our neighbor. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And that means you're not looking down on your neighbor. So David says, my heart's not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Now, he's the king Nobody comes before him in the land. People are bowing down at his feet all the time, kissing his ring. Everyone's coming to him and telling him he's the greatest of all time, which he might have been. You unified the people. Look what you did. Look at the land. They're they're constantly buttering him up, and yet he says, my eyes are not haughty. I'm not looking down my nose at any other human being, or I guess he's saying I'm not looking up either. I'm looking up to you, Lord, and when I'm looking up to you, I find I'm on the same plane as every other human being on the face of the earth. The only difference between me and them is the circumstances of my life. So David gives the test, and that's a good test for me. So I've got to ask myself before I walk in the door to encounter the one true living God and intend to look up to Him, I've got to ask, is there anybody, anybody that I'm looking down on? And if, if you're like me, you're going to find the answer is sometimes yes. What do I do with that? David says, I solved this problem by not concerning myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Which is to say, I remind myself every day I really don't know it all. In fact, I don't know much about anything. But I have calmed and quieted myself. You can almost see David sitting there. I've calmed and quieted myself. Can you calm and quiet yourself? Well, that's what a baby can't do. A baby cannot, until it learns to, calm and soothe and quiet itself. I don't know how many of you raised children in the same generation that Debbie and I did, but when we were coming along, there were a number of uh, popular kind of doctors who wrote books, and one of them was a doctor who became famous for one technique, and his name was Dr. Farber. Have any of you ever heard of Dr. Farber? So in the last service, people go, huh? But in this service, you're more my age, and you go, oh, we heard of him. And we used to call it farberizing. Did anybody else ever farberize their kids? Okay, you farberize. You hate to admit it, don't you? Because it sounds so mean and cruel, but it's not. So this is what farberizing your kid was about. You had a baby, and the baby screamed through the night. Our first 
screamed a lot at the beginning so that we were well prepared. So that, that, that one, you know, and what they want, of course, is for you to get out of your bed and to come over and to pick them up and soothe them. And you are very tempted to do that because there is something alluring about being needed like that. And the problem is you're getting worn out. And so Dr. Farber, in his little book, he says, if you are worn out, you are a terrible parent. Can I get an amen to that? Okay, amen. So he says, you've got to teach your baby to take care of itself. And the first step is to teach your baby to soothe itself. And so this is what you do. Every night, add a minute before you walk in. Sometimes if you feel really bold, add five. Add a minute before you walk in. It's not that you're never going to come in in comfort, but I'm going to let you try to do it for yourself first. And Dr. Farber said, in time, you will discover you no longer need to go in at all because your baby develops a capacity to calm and quiet itself. And so help me, it worked. As God is my witness... It works because we have to learn to do this. Now, here's the problem. We currently reside in a society where no one knows how to do this. I won't say no one, but not many. I read an article this week that really caught my attention. It was about the Barbie Heimer syndrome. Now, you've heard about the Barbie Heimer thing. It's the two big releases at one time. The film industry is back, and, you know, I haven't seen Barbie yet. I'm told it's much deeper than plastic cars, but it's hard for me to bring myself to go see Barbie. But someone told me just this morning, you must see this movie, so I'm going to try. Oppenheimer, on the other hand, I'm really eager to see. But this article was talking about how nobody knows how to behave in theaters anymore. Did anybody catch this article? It was really widely distributed, widely dispersed, and uh, it's been now, uh, this phenomenon has been studied. So theater owners and operators around the country are reporting that people are misbehaving in theaters like never before, and it's ruining the experience for other patrons. And let me tell you the following things that they are doing. It was a big list, but I'll try to name a few. So first of all, they are TikToking and Instagramming all through the film. So they are paying no attention, and the person around, their screens are all lit up, and they're laughing at what's going on on the screen instead of what's going on on the screen. They're responding at inappropriate times in the movie. Uh, They're coming in trashed. In other words, they're on drugs or alcohol more than ever before. They're throwing food around. They're talking to their neighbors. They're doing all kinds of silly things. And this was my favorite. A number of them are coming to the theater nude. I did not realize that was a thing. (laughs) Read the article for yourself. People, a guy had to be escorted out because he was nude. He apparently didn't realize this was a problem. Do not try this in worship. We will get you out of here so fast. (laughs) Some things you cannot unsee. Okay, so, so this article was about why is this happening? And there are all these theories about it. One person just said, well, people are just rude now. I think I got evidence for that. On the roads, behavior's changed. 
In grocery stores, behaviors change. Shopping malls, behaviors change. Restaurants, behaviors change. So movie theaters, behaviors change. Maybe we just lost all of our social graces in the pandemic, or maybe we're just really selfish. But I wasn't really satisfied with that answer because people are people wherever you go in any time or era. I, people are people. And so I, I, I kept reading until one person caught my attention, and that was a mental health expert, a psychiatrist, I believe, who said, no, here's the problem. We are dramatically traumatized right now. We're on overload. Everywhere we turn, there's conflict. They said the political arena, uh, the weather, global warming, and concern about that, um, the pandemic, what's happening to schools and children. They listed a laundry list. They said, we're just repeatedly traumatized, and it's caused us to become very selfish and narcissistic. I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. But we're going to have to be farberized. We're going to have to learn to be a society again. But the biggest thing we're going to have to learn before we can really worship is to calm and quiet ourselves. We've got to get ourselves into a place where we can, we can draw from each other and we can draw from God. And David says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I've soothed myself. I'm prepared to be in the presence of God. This is humility. This is humility because humility means I subject myself to the well-being of others around me, and I subject myself that the wisdom I will receive is beyond myself, and I subject myself to a moment of discipline in which I am here prepared to do nothing but offer myself to God and to other people. I have subjected myself to something beyond myself. I love a book that I've read. This is my favorite book of 2023 so far. It's called This Here Flesh. It's written by Cole Arthur Riley. This is a book that a friend of mine gave to me. I was not prepared to love it. It's the best book I've read so far this year. You might want to take a look at it. I don't know how she became so wise at such a young age. But catch this paragraph, would you? Bravado tends to drown out sound and wonder. I just love that line. Bravado tends to drown out sound and wonder. Perhaps you've known the person who devours beauty as if it belongs to them. It's a possessive matter. It's a possessive wonder. It eats not to delight, but to collect, trade, and boast. It consumes beauty to grow in ego, not in love. It climbs mountains to gain ownership, not to gain freedom. Do you recognize our society there? All about me, all individualistic, all about my success, all about what I can get, what I can gain, what I can have, what I can own, what I can possess. Everywhere I go, I go to own it possess it. And that starts to include worship because I walk in as though I own it. I, 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 whatever is happening here needs to be for me. The songs that are sung, the sermons that preach, the way the temperature is, whatever it is, it better be to my liking because after all, this is all about me. You did know that, didn't you? 
But worship is when we say this is all about God and we will essentially put some things aside and choose not to worry about them. If the music's not your style, big deal. God's being praised. If it is your style, big deal. God's being praised, honored, and glorified. If I preach well that day, big deal. If I'm a lousy preacher that day, big deal. What difference does it make? Because the question is, what is God doing? right here and right now, and what is God preparing to do in the future? David is quieted himself. Now, look, this is the best part. This is where we get to the good stuff. He says, I've I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with this mother. Listen to the pilgrim actually singing this song as they go down the road. I'm like a weaned child with this. I don't know what tune you have here, but it's mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Now, I hope that you're smarter than I am. It it wouldn't be hard to do that. But that you just go immediately, I know what that means. But I got surprised by this when I was studying for this sermon series. About six weeks ago, the first time I read this psalm, I'm like, David, what are you talking about? Like, I would have understood this psalm had David said, I'm like a nursing child. I would have gotten that because you, right, exactly. I'm coming to God in utter dependence. By the way, don't you love this maternal image of God? But I'm coming to God in utter dependence because I need to be fed by God or I will die. I can't live without the presence of God. David says precisely the opposite. I'm a weaned child with its mother. And I go, whoa, David. I pray, Lord, what what does this mean? And then it came to me. See if you think I'm right about this. It came to me. So a nursing child comes to its mother in expectation. You will feed me. In fact, any time a nursing child comes to its mother, it is always thinking about food. You know this if you've ever seen a nursing child or had a nursing child. Every single time the question is, is it time to eat? The nursing child comes to its mother in total dependence A baby that cannot take care for itself. You do it for me. You take care of me. A nursing child comes to mama's food. But a weaned child comes to its mother out of love. I don't have to have you to eat. I don't have to have you right now, but I want your presence. I desire to be in your presence because I love you, because you are, to me, important. A weaned child has a choice. And David has a choice. He has learned to feed himself. And because he can feed himself, he doesn't have to come to God every time expecting something in return. Because this is how a lot of people come to worship. Lord, give me what I want right now. And if you do not give me what I want right now, I will question your goodness and your grace and your mercy. I may question your very identity as God. In fact, I may question your existence altogether because it's not like I want it to be. So give me, give me, give me. That same person comes to worship always to be fed. You guys ever seen Little Shop of Horrors? Feed me now. Feed me now. But a disciple, a whole life disciple of Jesus has learned to feed themselves. 
They don't need me to read Scripture. They can do that on their own. They don't need me to pray. They know how to do that. They know how to spend time with God, and they know how to be close to God. And when they come to worship, they don't come saying, Lord, give me, and they don't come saying, whoever's in here, give to me. They come saying, I am here to receive whatever you have for me. If you have nothing for me today, that's just fine. Then I'm just here to sit in your presence out of choice, Lord, because I love you, because I desire to be near you, because that is like life to me, because I've discovered that's what the meaning of my existence is. I know how to feed myself, so I'm walking in the room, Lord, to offer something to you out of my free agency. I make a choice here to worship and to praise you. Make sense? David's on to something, man. This is, this is why the Bible is life, because it so often says something that is counterintuitive to me. The wisdom that is here is just astounding. So, Lord, when I come, I will say, what do you want to do with this moment? It's up to you. It belongs to you. You do with it what you will, and I am here to receive whatever it is you will give me today. If what you give me this week is pain, then that's what I'll receive. If it is pleasure, then that's what I'll receive. If it is trouble, then that's what I'll receive. If it is joy, that's what I'll receive because I'm ready, Lord, to live for you no matter the circumstances of my life because I cannot control my circumstances, but I can always choose my response. Worship is my response. David finishes this psalm. I mean, I hate to get out of this one. David finishes and says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord now. But not just now forevermore, beyond my life, beyond my rule, beyond my time, beyond this place. Israel, put your trust in the Lord forevermore. Now, this is what's so cool about this. It's just so consistent with the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 5, 13 through 14, the author of Hebrews makes the observation, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use, discipleship, have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. Now the question is, what comes after this psalm? Because I've been treating these as pairs or couplets, and the answer is really interesting. And I think that the author of the next song is Solomon. Now, I can't prove this. The psalm we just read is ascribed to David since ancient times. So pretty sure, I mean, there are arguments to the contrary, but pretty sure that David wrote those three little short verses, that self-speak. But the one that follows it, I think, is written by his son Solomon in 959 at the dedication of the temple when he's compiling the manual for entering the temple for worship. And when we get to that place, here's what I think Solomon writes. Now, listen why this makes sense. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Now, remember, he's writing it for everybody, so he doesn't say, remember daddy. He says, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go to bed. I will not allow sleep to fall upon my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord. And you, of course, remember the story of how David built his palace first 
and with a little help from a prophet came to understand that might not have been such a hot idea, that maybe he needed a house for the Lord too, and his splendid palace is there, but the Lord has a tent. And, and so David makes a vow to God that he'll build the temple. And God says, that's good. I received that vow. But then because of circumstances that David could have controlled, but didn't, because of things that happened in his land and in his life, because of that, David wasn't allowed to finish the temple. God told him, your son Solomon, you'll never see the temple. Solomon's going to build it. Is that what's ha- is this, this may be why the building's not finishing now. I, it could be that it's me. Just think about this. It may be that God's saying, Jim, Chris is going to see that. You're going to die before that thing. I think that, but anyway. So David comes along. It could happen. So David comes along. I'm just kidding. So he comes along. I'm going to see that room. So Solomon comes along and he writes about his daddy David's commitment right before they're about to dedicate the temple. It's a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah, in the prophecies. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. And what was found in the fields of Jar, do you remember? The Ark of the Covenant. David had to rediscover the Ark of the Covenant in the fields of, in, in the wilderness. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing with joy. See, Solomon's preparing the people and the priests for the new temple with the words of Scripture. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. Now, is Solomon talking about himself here when he speaks of the anointed one? Well, the language in the Hebrew would lead us to believe the answer to that is no. So when we see these words in the Hebrew, we know that somebody is being talked about. And when we see anointed one, we should learn to think that that is what the? That's the Messiah. Now, that's not Jesus yet to this writer. Because Jesus hadn't come yet, so Solomon doesn't know that there will be one named Jesus. He does not know that a thousand years from now, God's people will gather as the church and that they will acknowledge this psalm that I am writing as a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. But he does know that a Messiah has been promised. If you don't believe that's what he's talking about, wait to the end of this psalm. There's no mistaking it. He does know that what is being done here is laying a foundation For the day when God will no longer reside in a building, but in a man. And then after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, not even in a man. But broadly through his church and his people and his dwelling place, as as the revelation says, will be among us. He will be our God and we will be his people. The Lord swore an oath to David. A sure oath he will not revoke one of your descendants, I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, and who are David's sons? Solomon among them. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever, and I will sit in throne, for I have desired it. 
I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I'll clothe her priest with salvation. Her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make, listen to this, a horn grow up for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. What is Solomon envisioning? That the worship of God's people lays the foundation for what God is doing eternally. That the work of God's people in worship creates the foundation upon which eternity stands, that the lampstand that God will place in the temple that human beings build will be the one that shines the light to the nations through the anointed one, even the Messiah, now we know, Jesus Christ. For someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David, at the end of his psalm, spoke about forevermore. Solomon fleshes it out. I'll clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown forever and ever. Amen. I love the way that Solomon in his now is able to see every tomorrow. I love the way that he's saying, beyond my life, beyond even this building, God's work is eternal because that's what worship does. It places time in the context of eternity. We get context about our lives. The reason we become humble is we stop thinking that every little thing that happens is the be-all, end-all of anything. Everything in this world comes and goes. Don't become hopeless, friends. Don't start to get this victim mentality that things can't be fixed, everything's broken forever. It's about to all blow apart. That's not what faithful people do. God's got it under control. Now, it might not work out the way we want it to in this world, but it's all about the new heaven and the new earth eventually, and what God will do in this world will be to establish Himself among His people in their worship, in their faithfulness, until Jesus comes again and until this world comes to a close. We're good. We're okay. It's all right, my friends. You can calm and quiet yourself. You can breathe. You can be still and know that He is God. You're okay. And you will be forever. That's His promise. I believe it. Do you? David knows that this is all about humility, and Solomon learns from his father this is all about humility. We have to be humbled to worship God. Now, the question is, how do we know we're humble? And David helped us. What's going on with your eyes? Is there anyone that you are looking down on in this moment? Is there a class of people or someone who thinks differently than you? Somebody who has different color skin, comes from a different part of the world, speaks a different language, speaks with an accent. Is there someone less educated than you or more educated than you? Is there a person that works in a particular field or a particular place? Is there there anyone, even the criminal, 
even the prostitute, even the widow, even the orphan, the hungry, the destitute? Is there anyone that you are allowing yourself to look down on because if you're looking down, you cannot look up to God? David says, my heart is humbled because my eyes are not haughty. I'm looking straight eye to eye with every man, woman, and child you place in my path because you are a God of love and these are your creation. You desire every person to be your person. We have to be humbled to worship God. Now, I think quickly of Second Chronicles 7, 14, and 15 in the words of God himself when he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and then seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. If, if, if my people will humble themselves. So, Lord, we're tempted here to pray that you would humble us. We're tempted here to pray that you would you would make us open to other people. But that's not how it works, is it? Because you, Lord, have given us a capacity to humble ourselves, to change the way we look at other people. You've given us a capacity to feed ourselves. You have given us the ability to calm and quiet our hearts so that we might come to you, Lord, saying, whatever you have in this moment, for whomever you have provided it, that is fine with me, because my whole life is about your will and your way. I am quiet before you, Lord. I am waiting and listening for your still, small voice. So, Lord, to the heart that is humbled and open, speak now. Speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to the person who needs to receive your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior and their Lord. Invite them to eternal communion with you by your Spirit and through us. And Lord, to the person who needs to be baptized and entered the fellowship of the church because refusing such things is all about pride and needs to say, I am part of the body and I am looking at my brothers and sisters in love that can come only from my Father. To that person, Lord, speak and call, invite And to the person that's listening right now that has prejudice in their hearts towards a person of another political party and dares to call a human being an idiot, a fool, speak. 
and invite them, Lord, to calm and quiet and peace. And to the person who's looking at a group of people because of the color of their skin, not taking into account any difference in circumstance of what one has been given in life, Lord, wherever we have prejudice, speak to us. And as we have changed the gaze of our eyes and are looking at everyone as a person of worth, we will hear your voice. And Lord, speak to us about the hungry and the impoverished. Speak to us about our neighbor who is weird or mean. Speak to us about the people who live all around us every day. And lift our eyes to them. Lord, we are not proud. Our eyes are not haughty. And so we are ready to worship with our lives to look up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, can you believe we're talking about the race already? But it's just around the corner. Together, we are all new, all in, and all out. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.